Uh, we're starting a brand new series in the book of First Timothy, and I entitled part one, uh, Correcting the Clueless. And for some of us, we immediately go, oh good, I'm glad I came, because that, that, that's me. So I want to start with a concept that will lead us into the fill in the blank, and then we can move forward. So um, if you have been in this church for any length of time, you know that I tend to uh, say certain themes over and over and over, and this is one of them. Uh, it's something that's very important to my heart. It's something that drives uh, my ministry, but it is this idea. For too many, too many Christians, salvation is the end goal. Personal salvation is their end goal. They want to make it about, just tell me I have my ticket to heaven and then I'm good. That is a huge travesty in my mind. That we would just say, give me enough information that I might understand that there is a Savior. That I know enough about my life that I would say I'm sorry for what I know. Just give me a chance to get a free gift and I'm fine. I'm now going to hole up in my life, kind of live it my own way, but thanks so much for the train ticket. For too many of us, that is exactly how we live. It's how we think. It's what we believe. But Christianity, according to Scripture, is about relationship. Relationship with the almighty, everlasting God. It is about knowing, not about facts known, not about bits of information here and there. It is about relational knowing deeper and deeper every day. Christianity is not about you getting your ticket to heaven. It is about you connecting in with God on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. As a matter of fact, some of the most descriptive passages in all of Scripture about what it means to enter into heaven is relational. It's about knowing God. Do you know me, Jesus says. Now, for some of us, we think that knowing a little bit about someone is knowing. That is incorrect. I would hope that if you and I establish a relationship, you would be able to say something about me. You would be able to say something about my life. You would be able to say something about how I think and my groove. Can you say that about God? If someone comes up and asks you, Sometimes we have nothing to say. Though we get scared in our evangelism, our sharing of our faith stops because we have nothing to say. We don't know any more about God than we did when we first got saved three years ago. Knowing is Christianity. But likewise, Christianity also says that our mandate, our command is multiplication. That means sharing. How can you share what you do not know? You must be able to dialogue about Scripture, dialogue about allegedly the most important person in your life. We claim that Jesus is our Savior. We claim that He is our best friend. But if He is your best friend, wouldn't you have a bit more to say? I could tell you a lot about my wife. I can tell you 
uh, intricacies. I can tell you thought patterns. I can finish statements. If someone said, what would Susie say if I said this? I could probably answer that for you. I want us to seek to have a relationship with God like that. That when someone comes to you at work and they said, my life is falling apart. These are my struggles. What do you think as a Christian God would say? I would hope that you would be able to say, I don't know for sure. I'd know a little bit about scripture, but I would probably suggest that he would say this. Can you do that? If not, why? The fill in the blank in front of you is rather challenging. We have to know what we believe. We have to know what we believe, for what we believe dictates what we do. We have to know what we believe. We cannot share, we cannot know if we do not learn. So part of what we are doing here and coming together is learning more about our God. But it cannot only be here. I have you for such a short amount of time. Per week. That is not sufficient to build a deep relationship. It's got to be between you and God throughout the week. When you come here, it should be like a heavy dose, but not completely new. Does that make sense? All right, let's move on. Uh, maybe you want to continue to search for First Timothy. For those of you that just received the Bible, it's page 839. We'll be diving into First Timothy chapter 1 here in a moment. Whenever we open up a brand new book, we have to get some context. So let's get a little background. Uh, let's kind of go through this somewhat rapidly. Who wrote it? Paul. Why do we know it's Paul? Because he writes everything in the New Testament, right? It's just the easiest. If you ever have a test, just write down Paul. You're most likely going to be right. Um, we know that uh, Paul wrote it. It has been universally accepted all the way until about a hundred years ago when that kind of came up the age of let's question everything. That's the only thing, only one heretic uh, by the name of Marcion um, in the ancient world ever questioned whether or not Paul wrote this. Uh, everybody knew that Paul wrote this. However, there are some oddities about his writing style. There are three letters that he wrote, First, Second Timothy and Titus that are called the, the uh, pastoral epistles. They're letters to pastors. And when he writes those, the style is different. Why? Well, to cut to the chase, many believe that it's possible that Luke, the very same gentleman that wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, was his secretary that wrote these, and he had access to write it in language that made sense to him. Because a lot of similarity is found between those letters and the book of Acts. So Paul wrote it, but he likely wrote it in the style of Luke. All right, so uh, when was it written? Well, we know that Paul died uh, around AD 68. Uh, I'll give you kind of some kind of understanding. Jesus Christ died around AD 30, 32. So we're about 30 years since the church launched. Pentecost hit about AD 30 uh, or 32. And when that hit, it launched off this brand new Christian movement where then it began to spread throughout the world. So most likely everyone that is being dialogued about 
in this passage probably hasn't been saved all that long. It's probably pretty new to them. We only have about a 30-year-old church, meaning completely. This particular church that he's walking over, uh, watching over, Timothy is, is probably very new. Maybe I would say uh, at max, maybe 15 years, probably 10 or less. All right. Um, where is he writing it from? Perhaps Colossae. Where is he writing to? Uh, Timothy was in Ephesus. When did he uh, do these things that he talks about in the letter? Well, it's intriguing. Have you noticed that the book of Acts ends without Paul dying? There's no recording of Paul's death. So people say, well, I have a hard time with this letter. I'm not quite sure when this stuff happened because it's not in the book of Acts. Paul doesn't die at the end of the book of Acts. We end up going to tradition to find out what he did. It is believed by most scholars that after the end of Acts, he was released from Rome. He did some more travels. One of those was to a place that he had already launched a church that was Ephesus. When he went in there, he found that false teachers had taken a hold in the highest level of leadership. He goes in, drops the hammer. You now have Paul the Apostle tearing things apart, kicking people out of the church, then grabs his protege, Timothy, says, I have to move on. Timothy, come here for a second. Clean up the mess. I'm out of here. And he steps away. That is what this letter is primarily about. Now, last thing I'll say before we dive into this is how do you personalize a letter from a world-class missionary to a young pastor? To me, it's easy because I've always been the young pastor. Now, I understand everybody's slowly telling me that the whole young thing has gone. <laughs> I'm just a pastor now. Um, that's why I tend to hang out with folks that are older, because it makes me feel younger. All right. Now, this book has always been personal to me for two reasons. One, it's that I have always been the young pastor, and so it was very applicable to me. The second one is within the two books of Timothy, um, Paul addresses the issue of anxiety. And one of my life verses is within these two books, which is God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love. And of a sound mind. I learned that. That was the first verse I ever learned to battle with anxiety uh, in a counseling session. So that was back when I was six years old. So the idea that this is real to me um, is pretty obvious. However, how do you apply it? How do you take something that discusses leadership over and over and over and what the pastor needs to do and how elders should be uh, selected? How do you make that personal to your life? How do you apply it to you? I think in two primary ways. Number one, wherever you have influence, you are a leader. That means in your home, with your friends, at work. No matter what your sphere of influence is, you are a leader there. Make sure that your leadership in those environments are like what you see here. Second thing, I would say that, can you imagine that we had audio of a time when Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest evangelists and missionaries of all time, we had an audio of him talking with a young pastor and discipling him personally. How cool would that be? We have that. It's called First Timothy. 
I want you to begin to say, how would I listen to their dialogue and apply it to my life? How would I be discipled by Paul? As he is talking to this young man, there are scenarios that you're going to say, that's me. That applies to me. I want you to consistently look as to how this will transform you. Do not look at this merely for information's sake or as if it doesn't apply, because I believe it does. All right, let's dive into it. First Timothy chapter one, verse one. Uh, we're just going to read the first two verses and then pray. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow, if we could only nail down the intro, that would be great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may grace, mercy, and peace from you flow into our lives. That we would understand you, understand our identity, understand how we live in you. That Jesus, we might be transformed by the power of the cross, what you accomplished there. And that, Holy Spirit, you would have free reign in our lives. May we become the children that you so desperately want. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever Paul writes a letter, an epistle is a formal letter, but he wrote no less than 13 of the New Testament books that we have. Every time he followed a standard script, which was introduce yourself, Say who you're writing the letter to, give a blessing, then go into your content. Every time he starts it off and he says, my name is Paul, I find that intriguing. Why? Because that's not the name he was born with. We all remember that? All right. He was born with the name Saul. Why would he be named Saul as a young Jewish boy? He was from the region uh, over in Turkey. He was born in a town called Tarsus. He was schooled under the best Jewish leaders. He was an extraordinary man up to the level of Pharisee. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He was the ultimate Jew. As a matter of fact, he was a fanatical Jew. If we think of Orthodox, we got to go hyper-Orthodox for this guy. Why was Paul, uh, Saul such a common name for little Jewish boys, especially the little Jewish boys that are of the tribe of Benjamin, who was the most popular Benjamite in Israel's history? King Saul. King Saul is who? The first king of all of Israel. So they would name their little boys that because in their tribe, that was a big deal. So as a matter of fact, there was tons of little boys running around named Saul. This was one of them. As he grew up, he became more and more respected in the Jewish faith. And everybody knew that he was the big dog that came into town. We also know that what? He actually persecuted the Christian church. We know that Jesus Christ came to him personally. It says in multiple places in scripture, it records his testimony, which was rather fantastic. He was on the way to go persecute some Christians, throw them in jail, maybe kill them. The first time he ever actually shows up in scripture, he is sitting there holding everyone's jackets while they throw rocks at a young man by the name of Stephen till he dies. 
He's so fanatical about this that he is going to get more papers to go throw more Christians in jail when Jesus Christ shows up right in the middle of the trail, knocks him off his horse, and says, what is your problem? Saul says, I don't know who you are. And he says, I know, that's our problem. I'm Jesus, and you're messing with me. At that point, as Jesus comes to him personally, calls him into ministry, displays to him the amazing gospel that saves his soul, Saul becomes Paul, and he has a whole new identity. So when you hear him say, my name is Paul, that's an identity statement. Who are you? Are you any different than you were before you were saved? Has there been any transformation in your life? Can I ask you what you used to be and what you are now? Or would we say that you have slid now worse than you were before? What is your identity? Paul knew his identity. He said, my name is Paul and I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. He knew exactly what his job was in life. What is an apostle? Apostolos in Greek means the sent out one, the one that's supposed to go do something on behalf of another. We think of the term of ambassador. I would suggest to you that just like modern day ambassadors, if you ever see an interview with, let's say, the ambassador of Iran, you listen for what their nation believes, right? You don't just allow this uh, ambassador of Iran to just speak on his own. He's not going to run around and say, well, I think this. I don't know what my nation thinks. You go, then why are you the ambassador? What do you know? Unfortunately, that is most Christians. Every Christian believer is an apostolos in the sense that you've been sent out by God as an ambassador or an envoy on his behalf. When you talk, people assume you're talking for heaven. What are you saying? Because they're all listening, and if you say, well, I think this, even though the Bible says this, they're going to go, well, then why are you the ambassador? I thought you were speaking on behalf of God. Well, who said that? I don't know. You called yourself a Christian. That was your issue, not my issue. What are you saying on behalf of heaven? He said, I am a, an apostle of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua. It's not just only a person sent out. He was claiming to be an apostle like the twelve that walked with Jesus, who were personally called, saw Christ personally, uh, attested by miracles, and were able to do the extraordinary. He said, I'm one of those. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, he said, I didn't even want this job. I didn't want to go do this. If I stop, the rocks are going to cry out. There's nothing I can do. I am born to speak on God's behalf. It's what I have to do. By the command of God, our Savior. That's intriguing because in the Old Testament, we know a lot. God is my salvation. My rock and my salvation. We've all heard these passages. In the Old Testament, that's very common. But in the New Testament, who is called the Savior? Jesus Christ. Oh, I guess that means that they're kind of the same thing, huh? Yeah. God the Savior. What's that? Jesus Christ the Savior. Oh, I get it. He's linking the two. By the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, this time he defines Christ Jesus as what? Our hope. He has secured our future. 
He has given us hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true, my genuine son in the faith. Now, who is Timothy? Timothy, um, in my mind, kind of a cool story. His dad's Greek, his mom's Jewish. He's kind of a half-breed, right? He's kind of the, I don't quite know what I am, but it's likely that by the time he gets on the scene and we read about him in Scripture, it's likely his dad is dead. There is no mention of his father. He grew up in a city called Lystra in the region of Galatia. When you read the book of the Galatians... It's actually not a city, it is a region. He grew up in that region in a city called Lystra, and his grandma was a hardcore believer, his mom was a hardcore believer, and he grew up in that environment. It is likely, though we do not have evidence of it, it's likely that when Paul came through the city of Lystra on his first missionary journey, Timothy was a little guy. And it's likely that knowing that they were hardcore believers that he may well have stayed at their house as a traveling missionary. It's likely there he led Timothy to the Lord. How do we know that? Because the phrase that's in Greek of saying my genuine son in the faith doesn't just mean we're close. It means I gave you life as I gave you the gospel. Timothy, then a young child, not ready to do a whole lot, brand new in his faith, all of a sudden starts skyrocketing in his understanding of Jesus Christ and his love and passion for the gospel. By the time Paul gets around in his second missionary journey, he comes through the same area. By that time, the elders of the church recommend to Paul, you have to see this kid. You remember him from last time? He is nails. He is amazing. Watch this little guy go, right? And Paul looks at him, examines him, and says, you know what? You're fit for ministry. Kid, if you're going to walk with me, it's going to be tough. Because can you imagine trying to follow Paul the Apostle around? Talk about feeling insecure, right? Because, I mean, you're tracking with him. Paul begins to put confidence in this guy. By the time we reach this letter, they have been together almost constantly for 15 years. That was Paul's protege. It was Paul's apprentice. It was the one that followed him and did everything that Paul needed him to do. When Paul couldn't go somewhere, he sent Timothy. When Paul had to leave somewhere, he left Timothy. Timothy is a little mini Paul. The problem is they're not the same personality. They don't have the same strength. You will notice throughout all these letters, Paul is constantly going, Timothy, buddy, we can do this. Come on, man, we can do this. You know, now, Paul is so hardcore. It's nothing really stops this guy. But stuff stops Timothy. And you're going to see that right off the bat in this letter. He said, let me share with you what is in my life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace to you. In almost every letter, Paul says, grace and peace to you. Only in the letters to 1st and 2nd Timothy does he add the word mercy. Why? We know what grace means. Grace is one of the most common words that Paul uses. It means undeserved favor. When God looks down on you, and you know you don't deserve it, but God loves on you anyway. That's grace. 
We know what peace is. Peace is in the Hebrew mindset, not just no troubles, but that God is giving you quietness to your soul. But what is mercy? Mercy is a trippy word because we think of it a little bit differently than it was intended. In the Old Testament, it's really, really popular. It's a Hebrew word, kesed. In the Psalms alone, it's used 127 times. In the Psalms, it means help in times of trouble. Why did he use it here? It's likely that he felt that Timothy was under the impression he was in trouble. And he was saying, listen, buddy, grace and peace to you for sure. But you know what? May God bring his mercy upon you. Love you so much that you feel safe and secure in who you are and what you're doing. It's a very personal statement. Move on. Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. What's important about that? I urge you as I beg you to stay in Ephesus. Why would Paul have to beg him to stay? You got to assume he wants to leave. Why does he want to leave? Because really, in terms of biblical cities, there's two places you don't want to run a church. Corinth, Ephesus. Timothy gets involved in both. Now, that's one of the drags of following Paul. Paul goes through, breaks this new ground, starts up fires everywhere, does this incredible explosion of ministry, and then goes, all right, you're on. He's like, what? No. No. And Paul's like, bye-bye, sailing, right? You're just like, come back, right? And you're the young guy. You're in there. Everybody's older than you. Nobody seems to respect you. And he's fighting through it and trying to do what Paul would do. And he's struggling. And it may be a possibility of him going, Paul, I'm not qualified for this. I'm out of here. They're not listening to me. Things are falling apart. Yeah, you came in and blew it all up. But now I have to clean up the mess. And I don't think I'm qualified. He said, as I urged you, Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus that you may command certain men. It does not mean teach certain men. It means as a senior officer, tell them what to do. Well, that's kind of hard. It's probably okay if you're Paul. But what if you're Paul's sidekick? You're going to tell certain men what to do. Usually when Timothy is referred to, and maybe not so much here now 15 years later, but whenever Timothy is referred to earlier, he's always referred to as a young man. But now he's commanding men. I want you to command. I want you to tell these guys what to do. Command certain men. He'll name some of them later. Imagine being named in the Bible for being a jerk. What a drag. You're finally super popular, right? Because you're in the Bible, the, you know, the widest red book ever, and you're a psycho. So anyway, and what happens if they repent later? You know what I mean? And then they're still known for that. Anyway, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Timothy, step up, shut them down. Paul they're elders. 
You go, elders? It didn't say they're elders. All right. There's four reasons why scholars believe that these senior leaders were so high up in the church. Remember, this is a new church. They probably don't have many elders. We know that at least two of them are named. Paul goes in and kicks out the primary leaders of the church. How did bad leaders get in there so fast? How do we know that they're elders? Well, listen to this. First of all, he said, command them not to teach false doctrine. Who teaches in the early church? Elders. They're the only ones that have the office of teaching. So that's your first one. Number two, it took Paul to kick them out. For Paul to have to come back and root them out, they're pretty important. Uh, number three, I just lost my place. Number three, uh, they were rebuked publicly. Paul calls them out on the carpet in front of everyone. The only ones that that is done for is senior leaders. He doesn't rebuke everyone publicly. He rebukes senior leaders publicly. And then finally, later on in this book, he will tell Timothy, these are the qualifications of elders that we need. Meaning in contrast to what we just removed. Let's get good guys in when we just took out the bad guys. All right. So in other words, how big of a problem is in this church? And now Timothy has to fix it. That's pretty hard. As I said, Paul kicked out the bad guys, but now what? Now everybody's mad. Because some people probably sided with those guys. What's Timothy going to do? All right. I want you to command them not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Meaning they're wasting their time off in stuff that all it does is cause problems. He said, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. These senior leaders are constantly causing problems. They're starting issues. They're talking about things that don't matter. And all they do is cause fights. What are myths? In the ancient world, myths were a big deal. They are made up stories of how things got started. So, for example, in the ancient Greek world, if you wanted to make your city important, you would make up a story on how it started. One time, a great egg fell from the heavens. And it fell right on this very spot, and it cracked open. And out came a kangaroo. It was a god kangaroo. You're like, what? You're just making this stuff up. They're like, no, it's true. And you're like, no, it's not. Right? Well, eventually, they would all take pride in these stories. Well, you remember the kangaroo egg story, right? And they would just constantly talk about it as if it was legitimate. And that made them super important. Well, it began to leak into the church where they would talk about super important origins. And, and this is a big deal. God did this in our lives and we're important. It was all about prestige. What are endless genealogies? Well, whether you're a pagan Gnostic, who is constantly talking about, oh, I'm related to the gods, or I'm related to the... Or you're a Jew who says, my ancestry is better than your ancestry. Whatever it was, they were divisive. These leaders were spending all their time pumping themselves up and talking about why they were better than everybody else. Paul said, what a waste of time. They're doing nothing for the kingdom. 
They're building their own kingdoms and they're out of line. What we need to be doing is God's work, which is by faith. Get in there and get it done. We're not talking about this stuff anymore. Stop with the debate, debate, debate. Move on. Grow up. Now the goal, he says in verse 5, the goal of this command, the goal of this letter, the goal of all my discipleship for you, Timothy, the goal of what I'm trying to teach the church, because this letter was not just personal to Timothy, it was to be read in front of all the church. The goal of this command is love. I want you to own the concept of love, he said. I mean, this is the very center of Christianity. But what kind of love? I think that for many of us, we've bought into a bogus concept of what love is. We still think that it's primarily a, I need to feel nicely about things. I need to somehow soften my heart so I now just naturally react in a wonderful way. I'm never going to get there, so forget it. That's incorrect. That is not Christianity love. This is what he used. He used three descriptive terms for it. He said the kind of love Christians need to be exhibiting, the kind of love that leaders need to be exhibiting are these. Number one, love that comes from a pure heart. Christian love. Jesus clean up your heart kind of love. Love that comes out of no mixed motives kind of love. Love that is others focused. Is that the type of love that you're demonstrating? Number two, love that comes from a good conscience, where you know in the deepest part of you that what you're doing is what God wants. Do you have that kind of love going on in your life? Or are you kind of using love leftovers? Third type, love that comes from a sincere faith. Once again, purified, genuine, authentic faith. The Holy Spirit is operating in you. Here's my point. For many of us, we think that we should just be nicer. Let's just be nicer. Isn't that what Christianity says? Just be nicer. That is not what Christianity says. Christianity says, be actively, constantly, selflessly, vicious about love. Going out of your way. To minister to those around you. Living your life with a very hallmark that who you are and what you do is love people in a real, serious fashion. Is that your life? Would people characterize you as a strong person of love? Wow, that guy, I know he doesn't want to do that. He's constantly self-sacrificing. Oh, that woman, the way that she goes out of her way to encourage. Oh, that gal over there. Man, every time I get into that girl's sphere of influence, I feel blessed. That person's constantly serving other people. Is that you? Is that your reputation? Or is it, yeah, they're all right. I mean, they're nice. That's not it. Christianity is aggressive type of love motivated from a strength inside and active and alive he said we need to kick it up a notch we're not loving like we should he said some meaning some leaders in the church some people in the church some christians 
have wandered away from these things. And they've just turned to meaningless talk. Ah, I go to church, I learn some stuff, I learn enough to cause a debate. And then I fight about stuff. I get online and I go on Salim and forums and all I do is argue, argue, argue. There's a definition for you in the church, it's called useless. Verse 7, they, these folks who are doing all this, have grandiose ideas about themselves. They're very self-important. They are people that would say, I should be in leadership. I'm the one. The church doesn't recognize my amazing gifting. I'm extraordinary. And we've had people walk into this church with that very pompous attitude. Hey, I can do all this. Everything you're doing is, is mediocre. I immediately go, hey, you're in the wrong place, buddy. What are you talking about? I can't even utilize you with that kind of pride. You may be gifted like you wouldn't believe, but you are still useless to me. Because there's no way in the world I'm putting you in charge of anything. Your heart is wrong, and boy, you are off in left field. What we need is people with great hearts. That you do not have yet when you grow up there i can use you he said right here they want to be teachers of the law they want the prestige and power of being able to harness things and tell people what is right and wrong but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm he said they're clueless and they're cocky about being clueless they're constantly being dogmatic well this is what the bible says and blah 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 and the only reason that flies is because they're talking to people who know a little bit less. So they're allowed to be arrogant. They're allowed to be dogmatic about what they don't know. When they finally get into the arena where people really know something and they start to battle them, they have to move on. I got to go over and still be a big dog over here. They're constantly saying, well, I'm important and you need to listen to me and I know what I'm talking about. And then you dig into it and you go, no, you don't. You know enough to win an argument. When has that been sufficient? You win an argument? So what? What if you're wrong? You understand what I'm saying? Just winning an argument doesn't mean you're right. Just because other people bow to your bullying doesn't mean you're right. It just means you're a bully. He said, speaking of this whole idea of the law, he said, let me clarify something for you. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Remember, Jesus Christ, when he came in, he said, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. The law is good. The law demonstrates what God wants and demonstrates what we're not doing. I think that's really valuable. We look at some people look uh, ignorantly into the Bible and go, it's only rules and regulations. Everything's about rules, 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 rules. Let me ask you this. And I've said it before. Do you want to live in a world where your God never lets you know what he wants and he just busts you randomly? Is that the type of parenting that you want that never display what's expected of you? They just bring the hammer for no reason. If you've ever grown up in an abusive environment, that's what it feels like. Because your God never said that you were supposed to take out the trash. They just blew up on you when you didn't. You understand what I'm saying? I want a God who lays out very clearly, 
hey, these are the parameters. This is what I'm into. This is what I'm against. I'm not here to sit there and crush your world and go, wait, are you having fun? I have a rule for that. That's not at all what God's doing. God is laying it out going, good, bad. Everybody got the clear categories right on. This hurts people. This doesn't. All right, that's it. I'm just laying it out for you. I'd much rather have God tell me what he wants. I may feel bad about myself because I realize I don't do the good stuff super well and I seem to be drawn towards the bad stuff. I mean, yeah, that doesn't make me feel awesome about myself, but I still want to know. Don't you want to know? Or would you rather have everything guessing, assuming? He said, no, of course the law is good. Of course it reveals God's will and desire. Of course it makes us feel lousy. That's why we need a savior. The whole point of the law was to show you, oh, look how messed up you are. Don't you need someone to rescue you? Hi, I'm a rescuer. That was it. That was the point of the law. He said, and not only that, but law in general is not for all the good folks. It's to keep people in line that are doing something out of line. Does that make sense? It's not. I mean, obviously, if you're tracking with the Lord, you don't sit there and go, oh, my gosh, the law, the law. Right. I mean, there's a reason why I'm paranoid everywhere I drive and look in the rearview mirror. Right. I'm always looking in the rearview mirror. Why? Because I'm not driving the speed limit. I'm paranoid. If you're driving the speed limit, there's a certain amount that you can chill out, right? But the whole time I'm sitting there going, is he there? Is he there? Is he there? By the way, if you are a police officer, (laughs) okay, here's what I, I have a question for you really quick. Um, the other day I was driving down in the fast lane going past 65 and it looked and there was a right up on my back. Now here's the deal. It was the lights were flashing, like get out of my way. I'm going somewhere important. I didn't even see the guy show up anywhere and I live in the rearview mirror. So here's my question. Have the police developed a cloaking device, right? Where they just suddenly, like the old Klingon thing, like, it shimmers and it shows up. And you're like, what the, where did that come from, right? So anyway, that's my big question for you. It has nothing to do with the message. He said, now, listen, we know that the law is not made for the folks that are doing what God wants. It's made for the folks that are currently not doing what God wants. And he lists out a category list. Now, this is comparable and almost tracks exactly with the Ten Commandments. So you need to understand, the Ten Commandments are broken into uh, two halves. How you act with God, right? The whole have no other gods before me, that thing. Make no graven images. Those are about your vertical relationship with God. Then it's the don't commit murder, don't, don't steal. Those are all about horizontal relationships. Paul grabs the exact same pattern and says, the law was designed to handle issues between you and God and you and people. And he gives examples. These examples tend to stir up a little bit of trouble. So it says this. He said, lawbreakers, the laws for lawbreakers. Those are people that clearly know what the law is, but they break it. It is for rebels, people that are undisciplined, immature, unruly, and rebellious. It is for the ungodly, 
people that just willingly stand against God on purpose. It is for the sinful, people that have, quote, useless character. It is for the unholy, people that violate the very universal codes of things that everybody knows you shouldn't do. And the irreligious, those are people that make fun of God's stuff and they basically soil everything that they touch. He said, that's what the law is for. It's for, in the God realm, people that are anti-God in the regular way of living. He said, but it also, the law is for trying to keep us safe with each other. What are some examples of practices that do not allow us to be safe with one another? Well, he cites these. He said, it is for those who kill their fathers or mothers. Striking your parents in Roman law was uh, capital punishment. If you strike your parents, you die. Even under the Roman government, that wasn't even a Christian thing. That wasn't a Jewish thing. That was a Roman thing. Obviously, in the Old Testament, you don't curse your parents. You don't dishonor your parents. You don't crush their hearts. You treat them with respect and honor. He said, yeah, it's kind of for those folks. Or for murderers. Remember, Jesus said, I want to expand that category real quick. That it's not just outward murder. It's also the hatred in your heart. Are we all clear? Then he says... For adulterers, what's adulterers? Any sex outside of marriage, so it's either somebody uh, taking a spouse um, that is not theirs or a spouse taking someone outside of the marriage. He said, yeah, are, are there folks like that here? Of course there are. He said, you know what? No, this is hurting each other. We're not going to do that. The next one is a horrible um, translation in the NIV. It actually means homosexual. It just says perverts. Well, I guess that's kind of trying to be pretty descriptive, I guess. I don't think it's an accurate translation. It means homosexuals. Uh, it's, it combines two words, male, bed. That's what it does. Next one, for slave traders. It also means kidnappers. People would steal each other's slaves. He said, no, we're not doing that. That hurts each other. Uh, for liars and perjurers, people that are dishonest for personal gain. He said, yeah, the law is for stuff like that. People that are doing something that is contrary to God's desire for them. So it also encapsulates for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Paul said, I got that message. And now I'm trying to hand that message to you, Timothy, that you might give it to everyone else. All right. So as we close, let me give you this real quick discussion. We just blew past a couple different things. And one of the things that we just talked about that I skipped over was the issue of homosexuality. Um, I would suggest to you a couple things as we close, because I'm going to be very clear on where we stand on homosexuality. Um, number one, I will suggest that my daughter's age, my youngest daughter is six. I will suggest that her friends and all those that are born under that meaning younger than that, I believe that every one of them will have to ask the question in their heart, am I gay? I believe that every one of them will have to ask that because society will reinforce the question. Now, the vast majority of them will say, no, I'm not, and move on. There will be some, however, that will have to wrestle with that issue. But I need you to understand that as far as a societal issue you cannot just pretend like it doesn't exist. It's, it's very prevalent. Now, I have done an awful lot of research 
into this issue because I have a huge heart for the gay community. I have a massive compassion and love for the homosexual people. Um, I have had people that are very close to me involved in that lifestyle, and I love them desperately. I will also tell you that the homosexual community, uh, I would hope, feel comfortable that if they want to seek the Lord, they come to Bridgeway. I want them here. I want them to sit here and to hear about Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you this. I have done a lot of research. I have actually gone through conferences with gay theologians to hear their side of things. I have gone out of my way to do extraordinary research. And I will tell you this. I still believe that the Bible is very clear that homosexuality is wrong. You understand? I understand that we all have struggles, we all have challenges, and quite frankly, if we try to remove everybody out of church that was currently wrestling with something, it's empty. So... What I need you to understand is I make, there's no question in my mind about the stance that scripture is holding and I will not move off that position. However, I will go in my own personal life and in my ministry, I will go out of my way to minister to the homosexual community because they need to be loved. Amen. All right. So. The, what's so powerful about what the Bible says about that is uh, it's also almost the same list as one that says these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then it says, and that is what some of you were, meaning it lists right in scripture. The church is full of that, whatever that is. All of us, we have pride here. We have liars here. We have adulterers here. We have so many sinners here. It's 100%. But that is what some of us were. And we have been washed clean by Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure to engage and say, Jesus, how do you want me to change? I don't know all the ways to do it, but I need you to guide me and love me in the process. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that you continue to guide us. And I pray, Lord, that you would heal us, that you would change us, that you would love on us, and at the same time chastise us and discipline us. Lord, that we know that in our lives there are so many things going on that we don't know what we believe. We don't know where we stand. We don't know how to figure it all out. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand. God, guide us, train us, and change us. In your name we pray. Amen.